Welcome to The Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and well, a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we have Robert Soler in the digital studio. Robert is in Carlsbad, California, where he co-founded BIOS, a research firm that's doing its best to produce products that bring circadian systems to life in both commercial and residential applications. He has a history of experience in both research and commercializing products. And today we're here to talk about what the heck is circadian lighting. Robert, welcome to the podcast. How's it going in Carlsbad? Thanks. Everything's going great, you know, with all things considered. All things considered. Yeah. I mean, we're sitting here, it's the middle of summer. Hard to believe that all of a sudden July came out of nowhere. How's it been not having to get on airplanes all the time and maybe spend more time at home? Yeah, that part of it is actually pretty nice. I do enjoy getting more family time. I think that that is probably the one silver lining of this pandemic is that I've been able to spend more quality time with my family. Well, hey, you're spending more time at home and I'm sure a lot of people are spending time at home and lighting is always an important part of our built environment. So it'll be fun to see how people maybe take lighting more seriously at home now. But do me a quick favor, just tell us who is Robert and how'd you find your passion to get started in lighting? Yeah, my history is I've always had an appreciation for light. When I was younger, well, I've always been this, but I'm allergic to the sun. And so when I was younger, this was really, really unfortunate, but I would get rashes all over my body and it turns out it was the UV in the spectrum of the light. So I think I've always recognized that lighting is important. So now I'm a converted, light nerd always walk in a building and look straight up that's kind of the telltale of a light nerd going absolutely you know, somewhere and you look at the lights and what's going on up in the ceiling but i'm an electrical engineer background went to the lighting research center and then luckily got a job at nasa i was recruited to put the first led light on international space station it was really cool so i was in the space life sciences lab and i was everyone's best friend because everyone so is all these biologists microbiologists circadian biologists plant physiologists and i came in and i was a lighting guy and everyone knew that light was really important to biology man we did so many experiments on how light interacts with biology how it could be used for disinfection of water air surfaces how it could do things with plant morphology extending fruiting seasons change the way plants grow and of course how light can interact with human physiology and train circadian rhythms. And so that was really kind of when I got the bug that light is super cool. It all came kind of full circle. So the stuff that I experienced younger was a passion because I thought light was really cool, but then it kind of came full circle into the biology of light. And here we are today. I've got to ask, what were the site visits to the space station like? Yeah, I didn't I didn't get to do the mock-up. It, it turns out I'm actually a little bit too tall to actually go into the space station. I'll never be an astronaut just because I'm one inch too tall. We ought to call Richard Branson and let him know, get you a flight on one of those SpaceX flights. You can at least fly by and say hi to your buddies up in outer space. That's right. What do you think was the biggest surprise to you? You mentioned you walked in and there were all these scientists that had been studying all sorts of different things. They realized that light can make a difference but they weren't researching it. So how did you come to that fold and maybe what surprised you the most? Yeah, I think most people who are listening are looking at light from what you could see. And all these people are looking at light from a biological interaction. And I was like everyone else who was listening before I got into that building. And then I realized that light was so much more. It was such a strong input to our physiology and everything that creates life around us. So I think it's really quite interesting to see 
or to really kind of learn that light has so much more of an impact than just what we could see. And it's hard to have that information and not try to do something about it. Obviously, there's been a lot of attention to circadian lighting, and we'll get into what that means here in a little bit. But take me back to really where all the research started with light and having intrinsic effects besides affecting what we could visually see. When did we start to, as a human group in society, research that light had effects beyond what we could see? If you go way, way back, I mean, Florence Nightingale was a big proponent of sunrooms and facing patients towards windows because she noticed that there was an an effect on the way the patients healed, maybe their emotional state. But back in the 1800s, they understood that light was really important from a physiological standpoint. I think we've all kind of realized that there's some some interesting things. If you think about how plants grow in in shade and and non-shaded places, you could see it. And that's what tips us off that it's doing a lot of really cool stuff. But it really isn't until recent times that, as you said, the circadian effects of light, even though we've known about those for decades, it wasn't until about 2000, late 90s, early 2000s, that we understood that there's a novel photoreceptor that drives these responses. Yeah, that photoreceptor. Talk to me about those photoreceptors and how they were discovered and what doors that opened. Yeah, it's the IPRGC. Once you know what it stands for, the intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cell. So we have retinal ganglion cells that send all these signals from our eyes to the optic nerve. Some of them are intrinsically photosensitive, and these ones go to different regions of the brain. I think it was mostly discovered in mammals late 90s. I think Russell Foster's credited with the discovery, basically with blind mice who surprisingly responded to light cues and they thought maybe they got it wrong, that they weren't blind, but they actually did test and realized that these mice are absolutely blind. And yet they were still responding their behavior to the light signals that were coming. And in 2001, Bud Brainerd did a study that evidenced that in humans, there is a non-rod, non-cone photoreceptor that drives our circadian rhythms. It's intrinsically photosensitive. So it receives light and it creates a trigger, but we as humans don't use that in our visual system. Just to remind everyone, what else is in the eye that we use to see? Yeah. So there's rods and cones and those rods and cones. So rods are usually used for night vision where cones are what we see color with. You have a red cone, a green cone and blue cone, and they send signals through these retinal ganglion cells to the visual cortex of the brain. And these intrinsically photosensitive ones have their own photoreceptor kind of embedded in them. They do still have some inputs from rods and cones, but they're also sending their own signal, which is derived from this photopigment called melanopsin. So everything and all the metrics that are derived around these physiological effects are based around melanopsin. Melanopsin is a photopigment. So it's very similar to what rods and cones are. Rods and cones are just a a kind of vehicle for this photopigment that basically has a sensitivity to a certain spectrum of light. There's a blue cone, it has a photopigment that is most sensitive to blue wavelengths of light that causes it to basically send a blue signal. You have a green cone, it's sensitive to green light and it sends a green signal to the visual cortex of the brain. This melanopsin is a sky blue sensor and it sends a sky blue signal to the daylight portions of the brain. So it's not vision. When you say sky blue, it quite literally is the color of the sky. Yeah, 490 nanometers is the peak sensitivity and it corresponds to like a sky blue color. 
I've got to ask just a random question because I believe I have the answer to it, but I think you're the guy to answer it for me. Why is the sky blue? Oh, yeah. So the sky is blue because of the particles in the air. It's called a Rayleigh scattering effect that it just scatters shorter wavelengths of light. Basically, it's an amalgam of the scattered light and the direct rays of light that you see. So if the sun is kind of setting on one side, you'll see that if you look the opposite way, the sky is very purple. And if you see where the sun position is, the sky closest to it is going to be more of a baby blue and the sky further away is going to be a darker blue. And that's kind of the Rayleigh scattering effect of the distance that you have away. The more atmosphere you have between the sun and your eye makes it deeper and darker blue. Got it. Because that deep, dark blue is always up at 40,000 feet when I'm flying across the country and I take a break to look out the window. Always amazes me that the earth is curved. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the earth is not flat. The earth is curved. But let's get back to that research and what's going on with these sensors and the melanopsin that is sending signals to our brain. What's that controlling? I think most people know that they go to the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And this is where the master clock or circadian master clock is located. So it drives all these clock signals. We have so many clocks in our body that drive when we get hungry, when we produce certain hormones, when our enzyme activities, when our body heals, everything is driven by a clock and these peripheral clocks. But the master clock that drives everything, that's a conductor of this orchestra that is our human physiology is in the brain. And it directly has a projection from these IPRGCs. Now, another interesting fact is that there are different subtypes of these IPRGCs and they go to different parts of the brain. So it's not just circadian entrainment, but they handle things like our acute alertness levels, our cognition, our mood are all driven by these IPRGCs and these different IPRGC subtypes. So this is a really important thing that we've got in our visual system. It's interesting that our eye is almost serving a dual purpose here. It conducts our body and it also allows us to see. I want to stop for a second and just thank everybody for listening to the science lesson we've given them. This is some pretty meaty stuff and obviously we could go further and further, but I want to move on and talk about why this is all relevant today. You're a lighting nerd and we're sitting here talking about the eye, but we just talked about biology. Bring that into real terms for me. What's going on today as a human? How are we living and how does this make an impact? So this all rolls into kind of application pretty easily. We have these daytime sky blue photoreceptors and they drive all the daytime activities that we should be doing. We should be thinking smarter during the daytime. We should be more active during the daytime. We should be more vigilant. We should have better mood. We should just be a more active person during the daytime. So really, you just need a lot more of this daytime signal during your daytime hours. And at night, you want to pull that away. And that's going to let you go to sleep faster. It's going to make you more relaxed. It's going to kind of facilitate the nighttime, the recovery portion of your day. So it's really just about having high amounts of daytime signal during the daytime and low amounts of daytime signal at night. And that goes back to before we lived in buildings. We roamed the earth. We lived in caves. We had more hair on our backs. We were <laughs> cavemen. But we've evolved into a place where, as humans, we're spending time indoors, maybe more so than we should be. More so than we were designed for, that's for sure. Well, I tell you what, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we can dive into that built environment, what's happening and why lighting might be one of the best solutions we have. Sound good? Yep. Hey. 
Real quick, this podcast is brought to you by Lighteye, a new hub for ideas, education, and well, a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. Check them out at lytei.com. And welcome back. Over the break, Robert and I were just chatting a little bit more about the built environment and how, as humans, we weren't necessarily designed to spend all of our time indoors. But let's face it, it's comfortable and often buildings are actually rather beautiful. Robert, talk to me just a little bit more about what's going on in terms of where people are on a day-to-day basis, inside versus outside, home or work. I think what we're starting to understand is that when we're in the built environment, the built environment lighting design was designed around the visual task, but they weren't designed around these physiological effects. And so we're inside during the daytime under too little light. And so that makes us more drowsy during the daytime. It makes us not as cognitively aware. It could lead to depression. And then we go home and then we have all these lights on and actually it's brighter than what it should be. So we've kind of taken this fundamental thing of our evolution of brighter days and darker nights, and we've kind of muddied it to where the days aren't that bright and the nights are too bright. I think that what we should be striving to do in kind of a commercial sense is to kind of make these days brighter. And so that could be driving a melanopic response. This could be doing just increasing light levels or changing the color of the way the lights look. There's a couple things that you could do to kind of bring in more of a daytime feel into the built environment. And at night, you want to kind of pull that all away, make it more day and more night, day in and day out. And you mentioned that we don't have enough light during the day and we have too much light at night. What's that relative to? Is it relative to being outside under sunlight all day? Yeah, that is relative to being outside all day. I mean, I guess we technically weren't outside all day long. We are inside and you get maybe 30 foot candles and probably 10 at your eye and you go outside and it's thousand foot candles or even 10,000 foot candles. I mean, that's a huge difference. So what we're getting is drastically too little. And then at night, we're getting next to nothing. Now we're getting maybe it's only five to 10 or maybe three to five foot candles, but that's still a ton times more than what we should have been getting at night. So it's just kind of this dramatic difference between what we should get and what we're currently getting. The sun puts out thousands of foot candles and building systems put out 30. The moonlight puts out a percentage of one foot candle and we're lighting our spaces to three to five foot candles. It's a problem, but I think we've done things as humans to try and deal with that. You know, dimmers have been on the walls. I've seen people literally get up on chairs and unscrew the fluorescent lights in their office. That's probably for a bit of a different reason. How does daylight play into the built environment today? And can that solve all our problems or do we need a combination of daylight and electric light? Everyone knows that the amount of light you get drops off tremendously as you move away from that window. So as high that window is, as you get that distance away, I mean, you can almost not count on that as your illumination source much at all. So you have to have a blend of electric lighting and windows and daylighting to create that mix to make sure that everyone in the space is getting enough of this daytime signal. And when we talk about getting a dose of daylight or getting the right amount of light during the day, obviously you can look out a window and you can see daylight, but that's not necessarily receiving it, right? What's the difference between seeing it versus receiving it? Well, that's a very deep question. Funny that you ask that because I think that looking out the window is great. 
and it could have some benefits if you're some distance away it may be very different than the irradiance that you're getting so you really want that window to be as close to your face as possible if you go back to what we said earlier the florence nightingale days when they talked about facing patients towards the window that was for very good reasons and you see data today that says if patients have a view something nice to look at that they get out of the hospital much faster well the fact that they have something nice to look at means they're going to be facing that window and looking outside that window a lot more than someone who's you know got garbage cans that they're looking at so i think that there is some benefit of looking out the window but as you get further away the amount of light that is actually on your face is much lower and it's probably not doing enough to give you the benefit that you need on a day-to-day basis. Because there is a biophilic benefit of having a view of daylight and things like that. But when it comes down to the science of receiving that sky blue to trigger these cells in our eyes, daylight, really, we basically have to be underneath it. And for anybody who's ever sat next to a window inside all day, might not necessarily be the most comfortable place, especially in the summertime. HVAC systems aren't quite balanced to keep the entire room a perfect 72 degrees all day. Right. What's going on with all these screens that we're looking at? I mean, we've got a belt environment, so obviously we need some electric light, but we're pumping ourselves full of electric light all day looking at mobile devices. Is that making an impact? So the way that it works on the circadian side of things It's a day versus night relationship. If you're looking at screens during the daytime and screens at night, it's not getting a clear delineation of day versus night. And moreover, if you get light at night from a screen, it depends on what you did during the daytime. So if you're a construction worker out all day long, that screen's not going to affect you at all. But if you're a designer in a dark room just with screens on during the daytime and then you go home and get that screen exposure at night, that is going to be a big deal. It's going to have a significant impact on your sleep and it'll start causing you to create this circadian drift to being more of a night owl. What's the reasoning for these night shift applications or things like that on phones? I think Apple has, they have their true tone display and you can enable night shift. There's obviously science behind that. Does that make sense to you? What's the benefit there? Yeah. So it's really just removing the blue, just kind of what we were saying earlier, higher blue content during the day and removing that at night night shift that's what it does it removes that color at night and so i would say night shift is okay it kind of dampens it a little bit tries to make it not too yellow not too red but there are applications that you could download that could kind of do it a little bit better for you flux is one i think twilight is another that you could download that really pull all the blue out and that actually has been shown to have a tremendous benefit I mean, I'm guilty as charged. I lay in bed most nights and I'm scrolling on my phone, checking out Instagram, reading news articles for the day. It's curious because I use it as a way to wind down, but that might not be the best thing for me to be doing at the end of the day. That's right. A good book is the best way to do it, or at least a Kindle. Kindle. And and I just need to pipe some moonlight in to read my book and then I'll be set, right? Well, there's nighttime lighting solutions that you could use. So something a little bit warmer would be a better solution for sure. Yeah, but if you could read by moonlight, that's ideal. There's one last question I've got to ask about pulling blue light out of these technology devices. Uh, We inherently know that LEDs pump out a lot of blue light, and that's just in terms of the action spectrum or the fact that it's blue pump and we put phosphor over it to turn it white to give us that full spectrum of light, but it's skewed. So how do we 
pull blue light out of a technology device when that's inherently what's supplying the energy to begin with? Yeah, so that's a great question. And actually, that is a very common misconception. So that blue light that's in LED lights, everyone gets scared because they see that peak, that blue peak. Well, that blue peak is there because it is the most efficient visual blue signal that we have. So when you see a blue LED versus a, say, an incandescent, the LED actually has less blue than the incandescent because it's spectrally engineered for how our visual system sees blue light. So it's designed really to put out the least amount of blue. So all LEDs actually for any given color temperature has the least amount of blue of any other lighting technology. And I think that nobody has noticed that. Everyone kind of thinks that it's, oh no, look at all this bad blue. Yeah, but it's actually not what- that much. Take me one step deeper on that. We've got a spectrum that says we're pumping out blue light and we're converting it into white light so that the spectrum isn't necessarily a measure of the intensity. Rather, it's just the native distribution of the wavelength of that light. Is that correct? When you see every LED has a peak at 450 nanometers and Mm -hmm. that just is what we see most efficiently. So even though you see this high amplitude, If you were to take the integral of it versus what's in a fluorescent or incandescent, there's actually way more blue in fluorescent and incandescent if it's the same color temperature. If it's comparing 3000 Kelvin versus 3000 Kelvin, the LED actually has the least amount of blue. And that's primarily because LEDs have the opportunity to convert what is primarily blue into a full spectrum light source as opposed to fluorescent where it was basically three spikes that were mixed together. Yeah, so it's okay. it's allowed to tailor the spectrum to exactly what they wanted. So it, you take whatever blue and super efficient blue and you could convert it into longer wavelengths of light where fluorescent incandescent, you get what you get and vision's a byproduct of what you get. You can take LEDs and you can make whatever you want in terms of action spectrums or wavelengths or colors of light. That's right. Something tells me that was an important key to solving the problem or maybe just beginning to help articulate how we control our intrinsically photoretinal ganglion cells and maybe helping us out when we're in that built environment all day. Am I onto something here? That's absolutely right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. As it turns out, people have kind of figured out this and bias is one of them. It's funny. I don't even know if I mentioned that I did the circadian lighting for space station. But when we did this, we worked with a a really big lighting manufacturer, LED lighting manufacturer, and we said, hey, we really need this custom spectrum. And they said, that's nice, Robert, but how many space stations are there? Sorry, we're not going to make you a custom LED for the space station application. So that's actually what started BIOS is that we said, all right, well, we know that this is important. We see the research, we see the physiology, we see that this is going to be a big deal. So that's why BIOS made it. And some other people have their spectral niches that they're trying to do as well. But yeah, there's definitely technologies coming, technologies that are available that absolutely address this kind of melanopic or physiological effect of light. Well, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, there's three guys up in, or three guys and gals, I should say, up in the space station. And thanks to our passion down here on Earth to help people live a better life, uh, that LED manufacturer probably reconsidered that opportunity, just to say the least. Well, I tell you what, this has been a really fun conversation, and I think we should continue it in a second part where we really dive into this technology, how those LEDs are created, 
how it's being put into luminaires and, and really commercialized both commercial office space environment and also in a residential application. What do you think? Sounds good. Cool. Well, we'll catch up soon and I look forward to seeing you in part two. Thanks, Robert. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick. If you enjoyed this podcast, then do me a favor. Head back to the platform that you listen to and click like or subscribe. That's the best way to never miss an episode of The Light Pod, where we interview people who are all things lighting, building technology, curious about the future, and honestly, just have fun stories to tell. Until then, see ya.